Hello, this is your host, John Hendren, with another episode of BachCast. Episode 24. What we just listened to was a Bach chorale, BWV 260. And I chose it not for any specific purpose other than to illustrate what a Bach chorale sounds like when we say a Bach chorale. And if you've been a music student, you no doubt have studied these. You probably have had to sing them, analyze them, and look at them, at least to gain an appreciation in terms of music theory of understanding basic tonal harmony. When Bach wrote these chorales, they were usually positioned at the end of one of his cantatas, a multi-movement work, and they were sort of a concluding movement. Many times they might not even include instruments. They might just include the chorus written in four parts. And what makes these so rich and kind of interesting are the way Bach put harmony together. There's typically nothing too interesting going on in the music. Sometimes there is, and sometimes Bach elaborates on the chorale form. But as a general rule, the chorale is just this super concentrated series of quarter notes usually, and it's just the most beautifully written out harmony. And you can take that same harmony and see it at play in other works. Yet it's complicated by different figures, instrumental lines that are going in different directions. Here it's it's kind of harmony in its most pure form. And that's why it's usually studied by music students. And I point that out because the focus of today's episode is not this work, but BWV 22, which is a Bach cantata. Now, cantatas are a huge portion of Bach's output that we have today. And there are those folks out there who like Bach, who focus on the instrumental works and never quite get into the vocal works. And vice versa, you might have folks who really love the vocal works, don't get so excited about the instrumental works. I happen to be a little more on the instrumental side in terms of my appreciation because I'm not a German speaker. I can't just hear these and know what they're talking about. So like most folks, because the world is not filled with German speakers, uh, we get out uh, the booklet or we look it up online and we try to look at the text and gain an appreciation for what Bach comes up with as a solution to the text in terms of music. Um, Bach, I believe, was a very pragmatic composer when it came to church music. He did write some very interesting things. He did respond to texts, and that could be kind of the joy in discovering the cantatas, is to take them slowly, take a week, take two weeks, kind of pick one and, and listen to it over and over again, try to appreciate what's there, because there typically is a lot of richness in some of these. And if on the surface you don't like the way it sounds, well, then move on to another one and try to you know appreciate one that... That is appetizing to you. I chose 22 as sort of the the jump-in point with box cantatas because it's a significant one. But before we get into all of that, I want to show you the last movement. Just played for you a chorale, a typical setting of a chorale. And now what we're going to get is Bach's solution to this. In BWV 22, there are five movements, and the fifth one is the chorale. But here Bach does not 
do the typical Bach thing. Now, I will put the little asterisk next to that and say, well, was Bach doing the typical thing before this? Well, this is kind of a, a middle of the road, I guess you would say, in terms of timeline, cantata for Bach. This is not his earliest ones that survived. This is not a late one. It's actually, and I'll, I'll give it away, the hint, the, the special thing about this B2V22. This is the cantata Bach composed, along with B2V23, as his sort of entrance ticket to the job in Leipzig. So this is Bach's first Leipzig cantata. Bach moved there in the um, middle of his life. He was looking for a new job. He wanted, uh, we don't know exactly what he wanted, but in writing he said he wanted to write church music. He was sort, sort of headed in that direction if you looked at his lineage and you look at his history. Um, and so he has to apply for this job. And this last movement does a chorale, but it, what it does is it superimposes it on a kind of a wavering musical thing. And I almost tend to think of this because it's kind of a repetitive. It just kind of is, it's got these even notes. It just keeps going. And it's, it's a delightful sounding thing. It reminds me a little bit. And I'm stretching here, I know, but something like a Philip class, something that's just kind of do 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 The rhythmic piece of that is just kind of going in the background. And then on top of that, he kind of does these phrases of a chorale. And now, we'll, after listening to that, we'll talk about why maybe he did that. So what do you think? Kind of nice, right? Nice sounding. Separates things out. Now, when I talked about a typical Bach chorale, Bach did not invent this format. There were chorales. There were four-part vocal settings before Bach. And so he's building upon a tradition. And while Bach, we have many chorales written by him in that format, he definitely was stretching himself, you might say, a little bit here in modernizing or humanizing or simply making this a little more attractive, right? This, this kind of bare bones, beautiful harmony, dressing it up, if you will. I think of it in maybe terms of something you'd eat, right? You could have a slice of meatloaf on your plate and that'd be it. Or you could put a little piece of lettuce and a garnish on top and suddenly it would look like something maybe, maybe you get at a restaurant, right? It's, it's sort of a dressing. 
And why did Bach do this? Well, Bach, we know, was trying for this job. And this was sort of the in way of presenting the chorale in terms of a cantata by his predecessor, Johann Kunau. Now, Kunau's leaving the job. He's retiring. I don't think he died. Well, that might be a possibility. We could look that up. Uh, but Kunau's out of the picture, and Bach had gotten to the church early. Uh, we know this through piecing together information. He got there early. He goes into the church. He participates. He listens. He's kind of aware of things going on and probably hadn't finished completely the works before he got there. And he had maybe a week or two to prepare these pieces for performance. And so what does he do? He says, well, hey, I kind of know you got a tradition going on here and I'm going to imitate that tradition. So that's that's this concluding movement. Now, BWV 22 has a text that we believe was given to Bach. Um, Bach would have written music based on a text, usually that somebody else had prepared. And many of these texts would not necessarily have been written the week before, along with the music. They may have been around for a while. And we know when looking through all of Bach's cantatas, he took some creative licenses. Sometimes he mixed texts from different folks. And you had this idea of a teaching and Bible verses. is basically taking a musical take on that Sunday's lesson or that Sunday's theme. And of course, it would have had something to do with the liturgical year and the, and the various things that happened in, in Christ's life. And so for this, this particular cantata, Bach is setting this text based on um, the title, for instance, in the opening is Jesus Gathered the Twelve to Himself. This is about, um, the basic theme here is that uh, from the story, Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples for understanding what's going to happen to him very soon when he gets put on the cross. And they're kind of in disbelief. They don't believe him. And so he's trying to convince them of what's happening and trying to say, hey, get your act together. Trying to tell you something important. Uh, That's my take on it. Um, And it's in five movements. And and the the chorus we just heard is, again, the fifth movement. Um, And it's kill us through your goodness. Could also be translated, according to the Wikipedia here, I'm I'm cheating and looking, uh, or us mortify through kindness. And again, this is a stanza of a text that, again, wasn't written by Bach. It was written by uh, a woman named Elizabeth Krusiger. And the, the tune in that chorale is based on something back from 1455. So Bach has this kind of task, and you might think it's easier or harder, I don't know which, but when he sets out to write things... He's not just freely composing whatever he likes. He, he is always looking backwards and by necessity, as his job as a church musician, he needs to look backwards. Uh, Bach is sometimes um, criticized for kind of being backwards looking. You know, he's the last great 
great exemplar of the Baroque aesthetic. And during the time he was still alive in the 40s and the 50s, there, there's a, a new style sort of emerging, which kind of flowers into the, into the classical period. And his, his sons were a part of that. They definitely adopted the new style, the new taste. But unlike their father, they weren't so caught up in only writing church music. And you almost be forced to look backwards. You're, you're taking, you're, you're making new music out of old, out of old things, right? Old melodies, old texts. And you're trying to put them together in a modern presentation, which is something new. And I think this movement, this fifth movement, kind of speaks to that. Here's this idea of a chorale. Here's this idea of a melody. And we're kind of modernizing it as best as Bach could and in in putting his best foot forward to get the approval of the folks in Leipzig to say, hey, we want you to be our next music director, our new cantor. What I find striking in this um, cantata is it ends on kind of a very positive sounding note. You don't even have to know what the words mean. It kind of sounds positive, right? The music kind of sets a nice mood. The first movement is very different. And that, again, is where we've got this confusion, if you will, among the disciples. And they categorize this as an arioso starts with an instrumental opening. We would typically call that maybe a symphonia in terms of a cantata, kind of an opening. But it's not just instruments alone. Bach weaves in in the voices. Starts with a tenor solo, a bass solo, and then we get uh, the chorus to come together. Bach's using his sources there. Now, I said Bach was pragmatic. He had at his disposal, evidently, a small orchestra, and he had... Um, a one-wind player, an oboe player. Um, the oboe gets used to quite eff uh, effective use, I think, in this first movement. Oboe part's really kind of cool, and it definitely sets a mood, uh, which is very different than the one we just finished with. Uh, the oboe also has a big role in the second movement, which is an aria, and that aria is scored for the alto part. The third movement is some that I, I'll be honest with you, I skip over some of them sometimes uh, because I'm not always following the text. If I'm driving in the car or I'm just listening to something else, or which I really shouldn't do because you can appreciate this music, you should give it your full attention. But sometimes I don't always have the text in front of me. And so I'll skip over the, the, the ones marked recitative, recitative, um, when I remember how to, to spell it. Uh, but the recitative, recitative, is the is the spoken movements and they're typically the shorter ones and they may have a dialogue that may there's definitely a purpose for it and it's and you definitely saw it in the world of opera and oratorios uh it was a way to get through a lot of text fast or to change change the focus change the mood change the setting uh if you had characters they would have dialogue through through these types of movements and there would be recitatives that would be um, what they call dry, very little instrumental, maybe just basso continuo, and then they'd be there what they call the the wet style, which would be with with lots of instruments kind of accompanying. And what's what's strange, if you will, not really strange, but this is Bach's creativity at play. Bach starts this this whole thing 
in the key of G minor. G minor is the key, my favorite key, by the way, but it has two flats in it. Um, if you're going up the scale on the keyboard, G, A, B flat, C, D, E flat. So it has two flats. Uh, that means if you, if you got maybe two to three flats or two to three sharps, as a keyboard player, that makes it kind of easier to play. And flat keys maybe might be preferred by, by instruments um, like brass because they're they're written in the key of uh, or they're they're centered in flat keys where string players might prefer sharp keys g major e major a major because their their strings have those those tones in them c d uh, viola is, is c g d a violin is g d a e um it kind of lends itself to that but by no means it's it's relatively easy key for everybody to play and again you're walking into uh, a new job you're handing people new music and you're saying got to play it so you don't want to make it overly complicated they definitely had uh, we would assume a talented oboe player and, and a key that everybody could probably deal with with no problems G minor the second movement that aria goes into C minor now C is the fourth um, fourth note in the G minor scale. It's related. Um, when you go from G to C, it's everything's going to sound nice and homey. You're still in a minor key. It seems related. Now, C minor has an E flat and a B flat in it. Okay? has three flats. The next movement, that recitative, starts in E flat major. So we're going from minor key to a major key, but it's gonna sound related because it's E flat. E flat is the third note in the C minor scale. We also had an E flat in the G minor scale. So we're not really off kilter here, we're, but we're changing keys. Then what Bach does there is he, he basically ends that movement in the key of Get this, B major. And then the resulting fourth movement, an aria for tenor, and the final chorale are in B major. B major is not a key that I like to play on the keyboard. Now, I'm not as accomplished as Bach was, obviously, or probably even the musicians that were in the play of Leipzig. They were, that was their job. They could play in different keys. Just not a favorite of mine. It's got lots of sharps in it. So you go from this sort of flat-based keys, the G minor, the C minor, the E-flat major, okay? Lots of flats. And then we flip it around, and we end this thing in B major. So Bach is, what I think he's trying to do is he's taking one mood and transforming it. And the crux of that, which should not surprise us, it would be in the third movement, kind of the climax. Bach loved these sort of symmetrical for, um, formal systems in, in designing a cantata. So he, he leads us up the mountain, the climax, something happens, and then we kind of come back down and we're in this B major. You'd have to look at the text to understand maybe what Bach was trying to do here. Uh, but it's very interesting if you, if you like getting into the nuts and bolts of how things are put together. Now, one more point on this idea of Bach being pragmatic. He has a four-part course, right? Soprano, alto, tenor, bass. 
and he exploits them all in the first movement. Now, why he starts with tenor and then bass, who knows, but that's what he does. Starts with a tenor voice, starts with a bass voice. We might get some context when we look at the text. And then he finishes with the whole chorus. The second movement is written for alto. The third movement is for bass. The fourth movement for tenor. And then in the chorale, all four voices sing again. So he's very pragmatic in that, I believe, he's trying to give everybody a solo part. He divides it up kind of equally. Um, the person that gets probably the least amount of airtime would be the alto, but they do get this nice full solo, so they get the whole movement to themselves. So nobody really gets shrifted here. The soprano voice doesn't get a solo. Maybe the soprano would be upset. Maybe the sopranos weren't the best. Maybe they were the, these young boys and they weren't talented enough to carry on a solo that an adult performer could do. Who knows? I'm speculating at this point. I'm by no, no means an expert here. This is just kind of looking at the plan here and thinking about how Bach was a pragmatic composer. He also has this oboe player. Gives the oboe player two big solos and then two movements the oboe player has off just to kind of sit there. Well, that's kind of nice because you give them, give them a rest, right? If you exploit them every time, the poor oboe player would be uh, out of tune and uh, flubbing notes and who knows what by the end, maybe. I don't know. But he gives the oboe player a rest, and then the oboe player joins everybody else to end in that chorale. Oboe player, if you as you were listening, probably heard that they were kind of playing along with the orchestra, giving it a little bit of color. So that's, that's kind of BWV 22 in a nutshell. Now, let's listen to the first movement, and then we'll take a look at the text, which is important in understanding uh, why Bach makes some of the decisions he does in terms of the music writing that he contributes. asked me, Bach could have followed that with chopsticks on the organ or the harpsichord, and he still should have gotten the job. Beautiful piece of music. I love how the oboe pierces through that texture and just kind of leads. Da, 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 da. Um, it's just very moving to me. Maybe not to you, but to me, it, it speaks to me. Now, the text. The tenor starts and says, Jesus took the twelve to himself and spoke. The tenor role here has this is kind of a narrator, okay? So we got some the from the start. If you're in the church and you're hearing this or you're reading it on off a piece of paper, you kind of get the sense this is a little bit of a musical drama that we got going on here. And the bass voice is is given to Jesus. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all will be accomplished. 
that has been written about the Son of Man. And so they kind of go back and forth, and Bach kind of pulls that apart, makes some beautiful music out of it. Uh, but we've got this minor key. Doesn't sound like all is well in the world, at least to me. That's that's what I'm throwing into there is my interpretation. And then I gave you the piece where the chorus comes in, because the chorus is the uh, kind of reaction. And that is, they say, but they understood none of this. They did not know what had been said. So you can think of this maybe as, as the crowd, the wise, omnipotent crowd who kind of is off to the side. And this is a dramatic effect. This was done in operas where you had some character who could tell you something that the others did not know. So Bach is, is kind of digging his fingers uh, and interpreting for this this uh, congregation and for the those decision makers in Leipzig to say, hey, I'm going to give you something kind of traditional, but I can give you some of the latest taste that's out there and give you some uh, drama. And I won't I will not say here that drama and the idea of an opera-type setting was um, foreign to churches. That's, in fact, where we have tons of history before we get to Bach of this type of thing happening around religious subjects. So Bach is, is putting himself out there, but not so much. But he is definitely tapping into the history of the Lutheran Church. He's pulling in text. He's pulling in the melodies as any accomplished uh, church composer would do. But he does it in a special way. And it, the results are, are simply, to me, stunning, at least in this first movement, a pretty strong effect. So let's get to this chorus part, and then we'll, we'll look a little bit at the second movement, the alto aria. So what do we got going here? If, you, if you're listening carefully, you're hearing the same motives, the same melodic fragments with the rhythm in the different voices. Bach is not writing a chorale here. Bach is writing independent parts. And what he's constructed here is a vocal fugue. Bach starts his audition piece and ends in a fugue in just the first movement. Bach is putting forth uh, a lot of himself here. Um, he's basically saying, hey, I can write in a contrapuntal way. We know that Bach valued writing in good counterpoint, counterpoint, being able to write in a fugue as a central part to who he was and what his gift was as a composer. And he does it right here. Um, really kind of cool. Didn't have to do that, but he does. He's showing off a little bit. He's the new guy in town. He wants to make a good impression. People know writing in good counterpoint is difficult to do, and yet he gives it to you in the first taste of the music. 
And then we get this alto aria with this kind of cool oboe line. It's like the oboe is going out of its way to be awkward, angular. Um, not the most beautiful uh, kind of arioso that you might expect that Bach could write. And yet it is in great contrast. I think that's probably Bach's point here. I don't know what he's trying to do with that kind of angular, awkward oboe line, although it's beautiful. The alto voice gets to sort of just relax above that. The alto line is much smoother, much more natural sounding, uh, and it makes a nice juxtaposition. The text here is, my Jesus, draw me after you. I am ready. I want to go from here and up to Jerusalem to your suffering. So this is kind of a meditation, if you will, by one of the disciples, perhaps, or the audience that's listening to this to say, hey, pull me along with you. I understand something's going to happen. I may not understand it, but I'm I'm kind of devoting myself to you. Uh, it ends with, and I can thoroughly understand for my consolation. Um, it's kind of setting up for what's there. Uh, you don't hear the whole story, but this person's basically telling you, I kind of under- get some of this. Now, the third movement is that recitative. Um, strings are a part of this, along with the continuo. And the text here is, my Jesus draw me so that I may hurry after you. Again, my Jesus, draw me after you. Same text, um, but this is, I want to hurry after you, so it changes a bit. Um, And even though this is the bass voice, the bass voice is no longer speaking as Jesus, so I should point that out. For flesh and blood completely fails to understand, just like your disciples, what was said. So this is the modern churchgoer. This is the voice of the person sitting there saying, Jesus, I'm with you. I get why you died for us. Um, Then towards the end, we have, ah, crucify for me in my corrupt breast. First of all, this world and the forbidden pleasures, and then I shall perfectly understand what you say and go to Jerusalem with a thousand joys. So we're kind of leading up to Christ's crucifixion and that that change there for me is um, crucify me in my corrupt breast. We get this key change, right? We're going to end in B major. So I'm going to play the beginning and the ending of the this third movement so you can kind of get the sense of how jarring this change in key uh, is really and how it kind of changes course for the conclusion of this cantata. So, 
I gave you the very beginning, and then I kind of gave you that line where he's talking about crucify for me, in me my corrupt breast for all this world and the forbidden pleasures. That's where we get this kind of modulations going on. Listen to it again if you need to, but he's changing the keys. They're setting us up to end this kind of nice little ending. It's like we've got to a... Maybe, you know, we're climbing a mountain. We've got this nice vista now. Everything's going to be good. We've got this nice conclusion, and we're set up for the fourth aria. Now, this aria, as I mentioned, has no oboe soloist. They get to kind of sit out. This is for tenor. The text in this case is, My all in all, my everlasting good, make better my heart, change my disposition, beat down everything, which is against the denial of the flesh. But when I am spiritually dead, then draw me after you in peace. Kind of positive, I guess, until you talk about being spiritually dead, but Jesus, God will help you. That's the message. Give you a taste of this one. So, very kind of uplifting, positive, feel-good type of environment Bach has written this uh, music around. My all, all, my everlasting good, make better my heart, change my disposition. And then there's the text says, beat down everything which is against the denial of the flesh. Beat down everything. That sounds like something that we could play with musically. And there's some chun 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 chun. There's these um, these two notes that stick out to me in the string part. And the performance I've been listening to, by the way, I haven't mentioned anything about that. This is the Bach Collegium Japan under Masazaki Suzuki. Uh, really like this recording. This is off their, if I'm correct, the eighth volume of their series of Bach cantatas. I'd like you to be able to hear another interpretation specifically of this movement. And I'm going to draw this from the John L.A. Gardner uh, English Baroque Soloist um, Monteverdi Choir production from the Bach Pilgrimage done in 2000. And you'll notice that they do things just a little more edgy, uh, a little more theatrical perhaps. So here, as the final example from cantata number 22, is the tenor aria, the fourth movement, under the leadership of John Elliott Gardner. Mein 
alles in allem ein ewiges Gut. Verbessere das Herz, verändere den Mut. Schlag alles da nieder, was dieser Entzagung des Fleisches zuwider. Mein ewiges Gut, mein ewiges Gut. So this is one of the examples where Bach could have really done some interesting uh, play with the music. He doesn't really indulge it for us, but we do get sort of that heightened drama, if you will, in the in the string writing. And Gardner exploits that a little more to perhaps bring out the text. Um, text kind of gets interesting there. Uh, we're all in this kind of happy, good thing, but then beat down everything which is against the denial of the flesh. And when I'm spiritually dead, then draw me after you in peace. Um, ends on a happy note again. And then we've already heard the chorale. So that's, that's BDV 22. The history behind this, and I would read up on it, if you read up on it, the history of any of Bach's cantatas, is just kind of interesting because, it again, was the audition piece. Um, the first thing that Bach presented to the congregation in Leipzig, uh, auditioning. And as the story goes, I'll, I'll cut to the chase and give you the summary. Um, he wasn't chosen. He was not the favorite. And they begrudgingly later offered him the job, which of course he took and made history there, uh, writing several cycles of these cantatas, which make up again a huge amount of his compositional uh, work. In his lifetime, he continued composing other things, but that took up so much of his time, not only composing, but performing uh, as an organist, as a, as a, as a leader, as a teacher, that was his big job that he got. And he wasn't chosen. They didn't think he was that good. Uh, the comment that, that they were going to have to settle for a mediocre musician is simply laughable, um, which, which says a lot of things. You kind of want to put yourself back in time and think, well, gosh, how, how could the people hear this music and think this was mediocre? Um, and it probably had to do a lot with them not understanding what made good music. They may have heard that vocal fugue and said, oh, that was nice sounding, but you know, what, what makes that so special? Um, they may not have been scrutinizing the art that went into the composition there. They may not have been looking at style and thought Bach was just not the right fit of style for what they wanted. He may have been too progressive. He may been too conservative. Who, who knows? We don't. We just know that he was described as, as mediocre, which is kind of, again, laughable. So this is Bach's entrance into this world of writing cantatas every week. Um, among my favorite cantatas by Bach are actually the ones predating this one. I like some of the early ones we've survived, that have survived. Now I believe we've already taken a look at BWD four, Christ. Uh, Log and Todesbanden, um, which to me, Bach is a little lighter. He doesn't probably have the same resources there in writing that, that piece. Another favorite of mine is, is 150. But this 22, I think, is interesting for the context of what it is. It's this audition piece, and it's somewhat well-documented. Um, and so this, the story is, is a rich one. So I'll leave you with that. If you decide 
to explore more of box cantatas because when you go to purchase them, you usually don't just get a CD or buy a recording that just has one. You're going to get multiples, right? And as I've kind of kind of alluded, there's these collections out there. There have been a number of performing groups that have set out to try to record all of box cantatas, either all of them wholesale or just the sacred ones. Uh, the example I just gave you, Johnny Lake Gardner, is is he and his ensemble in this course have set out in 2000 to go out and record all of the sacred cantatas. And they've since published it in a big giant set of 54, I think, uh, CDs, um, which if you want to own it all, that's probably the most economical way to get it. And in addition to having the CDs, you have texts. It, it It's going to be years of enjoyment, I think. And it's amazing that this ensemble and uh, has put this together in in just over a year of recording. Uh, took the took the company a lot longer to put them out on CD to master them and package them and all that. Um, but to think that they actually traveled and went to different churches it makes that recording kind of interesting. Again, I think Gardner tends to be a little more dramatic in some ways, which isn't a bad thing. But that's kind of his bias as a as a conductor. Um, Two others that I would recommend that have been done fairly recently. Of course, you can go back to uh, Harnoncourt and um, Lenhart. They did the, the big pioneering work on original instruments and taking an authentic approach, a historically informed approach, I should say, um, starting in the late 60s, 70s, um, and had set out to record all of, of box cantatas. That was done on the Teldec Das Alta Werk label. But more modern has been Tan Koopman and the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra. Uh, I started collecting them. I don't have the complete collection, but I started. That's how I got into really exploring box cantatas. And Tan Koopman is a big hero of mine, so uh, it made sense that I would start with him. And then um, Suzuki, who is a student of Tan Koopman, uh, has set out to do the same with his Bach Collegium Japan. And they have, I believe, 56 different volumes. They've Their releases have been on single CDs, whereas Koopman has been on, I think, three CD sets. And John L.A. Gardner's were coming out on two CD sets if you were kind of going along the way and buying them. Um, as, you, as you probably know, I didn't think this way, but if you collect them as they come out, it tends to be the most expensive way to collect them. But you get them then. You don't have to wait. Uh, if you can wait till the big recording projects are over, then you can get them right away. Probably one of the more interesting projects to follow up. Um, Koopman goes on to record all the works of Buxtehude. Uh, Buxtehude was the composer from Lübeck, who was an organist and wrote instrumental work and obviously vocal work. And Bach went to visit him on the 40-mile trek on foot and to study with him and overstate his welcome. That's a big part of Bach's history. And, of course, Buxtehude has, uh, has left us some instrumental keyboard and vocal works. And Koopman has dabbled in them before, but he went out to try to get them all uh, and won a prize, I believe, in the, in the context of that for that undertaking. Right now, this is totally unrelated to Bach, but just thinking about big Bach sets and big multi-year recording projects. Um, there is a J.S. Bach cantata recording project going on. Um, I'm going to get the guy's name. I'll put the link to it. Um, they're doing DVD projects. I believe the guy's name is Lutz, L-U-T-Z. 
and he's he's taken on this project over 20 years. They have a private funder who wants to do this, and the difference is they're doing live concerts, but they're also doing it, uh, they're recording them in, in video, which is kind of cool because you get to see everybody performing them, uh, which if you've read my blog at all, I've, I've written kind of, I think that's the future is... It's not just capturing audio, but also video and, and giving, giving the, perf- the uh, not the performer, the purchaser, uh, the ability to tinker with what they see. I don't know if that will ever, that's been an idea, it's not mine, it's been out there for a while to, for you to be able to tinker with things. But, um, you know, the advent of the DVD gave you the ability to change camera angles, and I'm not sure too many people ever really exploited that capability of the DVD, but the idea that you could be watching a performance and then say, I want to zoom in on the flute player or I want to zoom in on the chorus or I want to take a view of the whole space and you have these simultaneous video tracks that you can switch between uh, or you could even do audio tracks where you want to you want to hear what it's like to sing in the chorus itself so that the perspective of what it sounds like when you're in the chorus. Um, I still hold hopes that, that maybe someday that will come out in some kind of form that we can enjoy music that way. But the last big recording project I'll mention is um, Il Giardino Armonico, which is one of my favorite uh, ensembles. Uh, they're an Italian ensemble led by Giovanni Antonini. Um, they have performed a lot of the core Baroque repertoire, but now they're going moving into classical. They're going to be recording Haydn symphonies, and they already have, I believe, two volumes out. And that's one of those things where I'm like, woo, would love to start buying these, but then you step back and go, gosh, if I could be patient enough, maybe they'll come out cheaper later. I don't know. Uh, I hate to I hate to think that way because I want to support these projects, and some of these projects don't make it through. Um the famous example is Koopman. He started with with these corporate backers. He got maybe three volumes into it, and the corporate backer backed out. And then further along in the project, Arado Records, who uh, were producing these, they backed out. Uh, it's just a huge financial commitment to put out the complete organ works or the complete cantatas or the complete symphonies of a composer. So... Uh, please do what you can to support these artists and to to basically tell the folks who are making these recordings available and recording them and, and having the expertise to master them to say, hey, this we're this is a value to us. Um, the, the industry has been discussed for at least uh, several decades. As you know, what's the history? Is it, is it is classical music going to survive? Is is the industry recording the music going to survive? Um, and I'll tell you, if you listen to this maybe a year from now, the very idea that I'm talking about collecting CDs or buying tracks off online may be super foreign to you. Uh, of course, just recently, Apple has has gotten into the streaming game, joining some other players, um, and giving you this tantalizing opportunity to have access to everything that's out there. Don't know really how... When a major player like Apple is going to get into this, what it's going to do to the industry. I hope it only gets better because uh, you're listening to this podcast because you like this music. And I've been able to bring some of it to you because there are some awesome recordings out there of it. And uh, I think uh, the more opportunities we hear to ha- have to hear this music and to enjoy it, uh, 
um, certainly makes the world a better place. So thank you for listening. Appreciate you letting me go on my tangent there. Um, I'm John Hendren. This is Botcast, episode 24. And if you'd like more information about this particular episode, the series, or my CD reviews, check out bieberfan.org.